Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Coalition clinched Olaf Scholz to replace Angela Merkel as German Chancellor. Vanishing vessels, China removes its ships from a global tracking system, citing security fears and averting Armageddon. NASA practices knocking it an asteroid off course. It's Wednesday, let's make a move. A warm welcome to First Move once again. Great to have you with us on this high-flying Thanksgiving Eve edition of the program. No turkey of a show today, instead lots to crow about. We'll be talking about the global investment outlook, China, and the overuse of the word trillion with Howard Marks, billionaire founder of Oak Tree Capital Management. In the meantime, tech investors ducking for cover amid fears of swifter central bank heights, with the Nasdaq falling almost 2% so far this week. Fears that dovish Jay Powell might be a bird of a different feather in his second term, with perhaps a faster taper and a quicker invest interest rate liftoff. No need to grouse, though. Context is everything here on First Move. The Nasdaq still up 22% year-to-date and still close to record highs. Blue chips have been proud as a peacock, too. The Dow gaining for a second day as investors migrate to banks and energy names. As for partridges, well, they're still in their pear trees and we'll discuss them in December. In the meantime, take a gander at the global market outlook. That's where it gets more difficult, as you can see, a cautious picture as worries about new COVID restrictions weigh on European trade. In particular, France could impose fresh curbs as early as next week, acknowledging they're in the midst of a fifth wave of infections and Germany reporting its highest ever one-day surge in COVID cases. That's going to be a major test for Berlin's next coalition government, and that's where we begin the drivers. Schultz is set to be in. Merkel is out. After months of political wrangling, Germany has a three-party deal for a coalition government. Anna Stewart joins us on this. Just looking through, and it's uh, no small and light significance, the wrangling, I think, that's taken place to achieve this. Anna, what do we make of the coalition? What do we know and what do we not yet know? Well, you are seeing right now pictures of the party leaders, all smiles, walking towards this press conference where we do expect finally a coalition deal to have been reached with Olaf Schultz taking the role of Chancellor. Now, what are we going to get from this press conference? Well, hopefully some guidance on which party would take which ministry. Widely, it's expected that the FTP, the pro-business party, would take uh, the finance ministry with Christian Lindner being the finance minister. That was a red line for them through the election. And that would leave the Green Party with some really important ministries such as economy, uh, as well as climate, obviously, uh, and maybe foreign ministry as well. So hopefully some confirmation on who goes where. It's taken two months for this negotiation to take place. Lots of wrangling. And it's really no surprise because these parties are not natural allies. For instance, the Green Party wants big, big spending to enable a big green transition. But the FDP party, they would like to see, um, well, no rises in taxation, and they'd also like to see a reimposition of the so-called debt break, reducing essentially uh, government spending. So how are they going to finance that transition? We are already getting some wires through from media outlets reporting that it's looking like they want to phase out coal energy by 2030. That would be eight years prior uh, to the plan that was currently in place for the last government. 
There's also a suggestion that has been today from Reuters that perhaps they will signal an end for gas energy by 2040, which would be really quite significant. Looking at some of the German share prices going into this, uh, and these prices were taken a few minutes ago, uh, Daimler, Volkswagen, Lufthansa, all lower. And so that potentially suggests that investors here are concerned that it could see uh, some announcements around these stocks, around an acceleration of reducing emissions. So really all eyes on those going forwards. Uh, We might not get all the policy detail we want today, but we should at least know who sits in which position. Julia. Yes, good to know. And we await further announcements. And of course, there's not a moment to lose because, of course, COVID remains a critical concern and an escalating concern, as we've heard from the health minister, from German Chancellor Angela Merkel. She remains chancellor, of course, for another couple of weeks, we assume. Um, We're expecting announcements on this perhaps as early as today. Anna, what do we know about COVID cases and perhaps future restrictions? Yes, because today, you know, this new government that is being formed wants to look ahead to all the policy announcements they've been elected for. But on day one, they've got so much to tackle here because Germany, as you say, is really battling a dreadful fourth wave of coronavirus cases. Today, actually reporting its highest single day surge in infections since I believe the pandemic began. More restrictions could be on the cards. That, of course, will be very damaging for the economy as well, which is already being dragged down by the supply chain crisis, the high prices of gas. Uh, So all of that and inflation, Julia, according to the Bundesbank, could actually reach 6% this month. There is a lot for the new government to deal with. Angela Merkel, after 16 years as chancellor, of course, probably quite relieved. She might actually get a decent Christmas break. It's very interesting. This could all happen. We could see Olaf Schultz sworn in by the 6th of December if the parties agree to this deal. Um, And that would mean, actually, that Angela Merkel will not, as expected, be the longest serving chancellor since World War II. Uh, She would lose that to Helmut Kohl, but just by 12 days. Julia? Whoa. We don't want to wish for her to uh, achieve that, I think, (laughs) because that means complications of its own. But she's pretty legendary. Yes. Anna Stewart, thank you so much for that. Now on to a maritime mystery. Ships in Chinese waters are disappearing from global tracking systems. It comes as China shows a deepening mistrust of foreign influence, as Stephen Zhang reports. Analysts say they started noticing this problem towards the end of October. Normally, shipping data providers are able to track vessels around the world because of something that's called AIS, Automatic Identification System. Those transceivers on ships enable them to send information, including its position, speed, course, and name, to stations based along coastlines via high-frequency radio. But in the past three weeks, the number of ships sending this information from mainland China, which is home to six of the world's top 10 container ports, dropped a whopping 90%. And industry analysts think they know the answer. That's because of a newly enacted Chinese data privacy law that took effect on November 1st. Now, this law requires all companies processing data to seek and receive government approval before such information can be sent outside of Chinese soil, apparently over the fear that such information can fall into the hands of foreign governments. Now, this law does not specifically mention shipping data, but experts think Chinese providers may just want to err on the side of overcaution, with one expert telling CNN that some stations along Chinese coastlines were removed in the beginning of November under the order of national security authorities. 
We asked the Chinese government about this, and the foreign ministry in a statement sent to us on Wednesday claimed that all legally built stations in, in accordance with international treaties have not been shut down, and quote unquote, they're operating normally as well as uh, all publicly available AIS uh, platforms. Now, of course, satellites could still capture information from ships when AIS systems are not working, but uh, when the ship is close to shore, information captured by satellites are is not as accurate as those gathered from the ground. And that, of course, is critically important for the global shipping in industry, which needs accurate and uh, timely information to streamline its operations and improve port efficiency. That, of course, is why the disappearing Chinese shipping data, according to many experts, is going to cause a major negative impact on this industry, which is already mired in a global supply chain crisis with badly congested ports struggling to cope with fast rebounding demand for products and goods, especially ahead of the busy Christmas season. Now, all of this, according to experts, actually perhaps not surprising because this, uh, the government's uh, determination to retain absolute control over data and information inside Chinese borders is the latest reflection of the country's growing isolation from the rest of the world and the leadership's deepening mistrust of foreign influence. Stephen Jiang, CNN, Beijing. Hmm, with global implications. All right, let's move on. Forget Ghostbusters. How about asteroid busters. Who are you going to call? NASA. Yes, that's NASA's latest mission. CNN space and defense correspondent Kristen Fisher explains. Three, two, one. And liftoff of the Falcon 9 and DART. The launch of NASA's first ever planetary defense mission. Instead of carrying satellites, telescopes, or people, this SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket is launching a spacecraft to test a technology that someday could save the world. It may be the way to save planet Earth if there's ever an inbound big asteroid that could really uh, challenge our existence as a planet. It's what we call a global killer. Even NASA Administrator Bill Nelson agrees it sounds like a scene out of the movie Armageddon. The United States government just asked us to save the world. Anybody want to say no? But instead of destroying a killer asteroid with a bomb like Bruce Willis, NASA's DART mission, short for the Double Asteroid Redirection Test, is using something called kinetic deflection. That's a scientific way of saying that this DART spacecraft is on a kamikaze mission to smash into an asteroid and try to push it off course. If it's successful, then if we had a real inbound killer asteroid, we could do that with it and it would miss us. It'll take the DART spacecraft 10 months to reach its target, the Didymos asteroid and its moonlet, which is about the size of the Pyramid of Giza in Egypt. It's so far away that NASA says it will not create a dangerous debris field in low Earth orbit, like last week's test of a Russian anti-satellite weapon. The DART mission is creating an explosion and a de de uh, debris field way out millions of miles in space where it is not harming anything. Now, this asteroid is not a threat to Earth, nor is any other asteroid that we know of, though it's likely only a matter of time. But just in case, NASA did invite Bruce Willis to this launch. Kristen Fisher, CNN, Washington. 
Yeah, it's Thanksgiving. He's probably got other things going on. All right, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. More evidence of tensions between Ukraine and Russia. The Interfax News Agency is reporting both Russian and Ukrainian military forces are staging combat exercises in the Black Sea. This comes after top U.S. and Russian generals talked by phone about concerns over a buildup of Russian troops near the border with Ukraine. CNN's Fred Pleitkin gets a rare behind-the-scenes look at preparations on the Ukrainian side. On patrol in some of the most contested waters in the world, Ukraine's Navy took us on an artillery boat in the Sea of Azov, just as tensions with Russia have reached a boiling point. Our main goal is to defend and keep the sovereignty of Ukraine from the direction of the sea, the captain tells me. Russia has been massing troops near Ukraine's borders, the U.S. says, warning its allies a large-scale invasion could happen soon. The Ukrainians believe that if Russia does decide to launch an attack, that the Sea of Azov could be one of the main battlegrounds. That's why the Ukrainians are both modernizing their fleet, but also their infrastructure on land as well. The Azov coastline holds a strategic value to Russia. It would allow President Vladimir Putin to establish a much-sought land corridor to connect Russia to annexed Crimea. Ukraine's defense ministry gave us rare access to the massive construction going on at the Berdyansk naval base. Kiev has now ordered this building program to urgently be accelerated, with the Russian threat looming large. In order to complete this project as quick as possible, the Ukrainian military tells us they are now working seven days a week. And they say once it's finished, it will offer a formidable deterrent against any Russian aggression. Upgrades seem badly needed here, with much of Berdyansk's port in utter disrepair. Ukraine says new facilities will allow them to base more and bigger ships here. We are ready, this officer says. That is why we are here, so that at any time, if there is any aggression in the Azov Sea, we can resist it. Ukraine's president says Russia has positioned close to 100,000 troops near its borders, which the Kremlin denies. These satellite images appearing to show dozens of military vehicles near Yelnya in southwestern Russia. The Biden administration has warned Moscow not to attack and is mulling more weapons deliveries to Kiev. CNN has learned one U.S. defense official says Russia's aim may be to create confusion or to get concessions. The Kremlin dismissed talk of a possible invasion as hysteria. Ukraine's armed forces say they are on constant alert, preparing for an armed confrontation they hope can be avoided. Fred Pleitkin, CNN, Berdyansk, Ukraine. Ethiopian state-affiliated TV says the prime minister is now leading his army on the battlefield. It comes a day after Abiy Ahmed vowed to go to the front lines of his country's civil war. Residents, meanwhile, are patrolling the capital as Tigrayan forces advance. Sweden has its first ever female prime minister. Social Democrat leader Magdalena Andersson, the former finance minister, was confirmed in a narrow vote in the Swedish parliament. Fellow Nordic countries, Finland, Denmark, Norway and Iceland have all previously elected female national leaders. Still to come on First Move, troublesome trillions. Oak Tree's Howard Marks on his outlook for a post-pandemic world and tempted by Texas. Samsung unveils plans for a $17 billion chip factory. That's all coming up. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move and a cautious day on Wall Street ahead of Thursday's Thanksgiving holiday. Tech stocks set to lose ground for a third straight session. U.S. 10-year bond yields are near one-month highs and investors are lessening their exposure to riskier parts of the corporate bond market, so-called junk bonds, at least for today's session. The overarching theme, the Federal Reserve may move more quickly to raise interest rates. We're already seeing it in other parts of the world, with New Zealand raising rates again today in a move designed to tame inflation. Now, from Groundhog Day to the trouble with trillions, or at least the word. In his latest memo entitled Winds of Change, the co-founder of Oak Tree Capital Management, Howard Marks, provides his thoughts on a whole array of big macro issues. We're talking concerns about democracy, political polarization, the impact of technology, and the outlook for China. But my personal favorite in his observation about the T-word, trillion, which we throw around liberally in 2020 for the first time ever. And that's my words, not his. This is the fun part, though, for numbers geeks. A trillion dollars is the equivalent of $10 every second for over 3,000 years. Almost incomprehensible. Now, that is his word, not mine. Joining me is Howard Marks, co-founder and co-chairman of Oak Tree Capital Management, a firm with over $158 billion in assets under management and a man with more than four decades of investment experience. So we listen to you. Howard, fantastic to have you on the show and happy Thanksgiving Eve. The same to you, Julia. It's good to be here. Great. Howard, I wanted to pick up on that point that you made about the word trillion because it has profound consequences for us as individuals, for investors. Policymakers shouldn't use this word lightly. None of us should. And yet we kind of did in 2020 and this year too. Well, not only should we not use the word lightly, but we should not uh, spend these amounts lightly. Mm. And yet we have. Yes. Uh, You know, Everett Dirksen said 50 years ago that a billion here and a billion there, and pretty soon you're talking about real money. But obviously, uh, a trillion is a thousand billion. It's 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 really real money. Let's talk about it from an investment perspective, first of all, because then we'll broaden out to other implications. It has profound implications for, for investors in general, how you distinguish between opportunities. Because when you're talking about this level of money floating around in the system, um, it floats many boats, some boats perhaps that it shouldn't. Well, this, this, uh, this kind of spending and this kind of government behavior has a potential to have a profound impact on investments. Uh, that's the easy thing to say. Uh, how, unfortunately, however, it's not clear what uh, that impact will be. Uh, we've never been through this kind of experience. And it's hard to be categorical about it. But, uh, I mean, the traditionalist would automatically think that it's going to introduce uh, considerable uh, 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 inflation, and it has. And, uh, of course, the big discussion is whether it's transitory or permanent. Nobody knows. And, uh, you know, I don't believe in macro forecasts. It's very hard. Uh, to generalize, especially when there's no precedent. You know, you make a fascinating point about inflation 
in your memo too. And you say, look, we've been warning about the extremes, both of inflation and deflation um, for many, many years. Um, and now we're in a world where we have a whole host of technologies, be it AI, for example, that are actually deflationary. They bring down the prices of many of the, the technologies and the uses for them that we've seen. And we're in a world where you're effectively able to substitute technology for labor for jobs. And you envisage an idea where actually we have higher unemployment or less jobs available or jobs able to be filled, quite frankly. But we also have a rising growth environment because we're more productive. What does that mean? What's the policy response required to in, in that kind of environment? Well, that's a great question. Uh, you know, uh, we must uh, uh, anticipate inflation. Uh, under these circumstances. Uh, but uh, that doesn't mean we're going to have it. Uh, the conditions for inflation were present in the last 10 years leading up to the pandemic. Uh, uh, low interest rates and, and, and uh, uh, high deficits in the U.S., and yet we didn't have inflation. Um, as you mentioned, people have been asking me for many years, uh, are we going to have inflation or deflation? Um, uh, many people thought we'd have both, which, of course, uh, that's a joke. It's impossible to have both at the same time. But the truth is we didn't have either. And nobody knows what it's going to be. Uh, we're leaning toward inflation now. Uh, it's been very low for the last 30 plus years. Um, most people think it's going to pick up. It has picked up. Most people think that at least some of today's readings are are uh, going to be lasting. And if you believe that, you should turn some of your portfolio to floating rate debt as opposed to fix because the interest rate can rise. And you should think about assets and companies that can keep up with inflation and, and offset it. Uh, uh, mm, rental real estate, where the rents can be increased, uh, companies where earnings can grow uh, fast enough to keep up with inflation. These are the kinds of things uh, that uh, that one might do. It's also going to be a big question for the Federal Reserve, and we're sort of seeing, at least in the short term, um, some of those shifts taking place. If, if you were Jay Powell and in charge of the Federal Reserve, what would you be doing? And is that different from what you expect him to do? Because there are two questions there. Yes. Um, <clears throat> um, I would... Uh, be tapering uh, the bond buying uh, as the as has been begun within the last week or so. Uh, <clears throat> but I would probably do it a little faster. Uh, I would uh, uh, raise interest rates uh, a little sooner. Uh, uh, my my uh, my uh, chip in the game is not high rates or low rates. What I'd like to see is the rates that would uh, occur if the Fed left rates alone, uh, if it did not apply pressure to either lower or raise them. Uh, I don't think we have a free market in money, and I'd like to see a free market in money um, so that the economy could tell us uh, what rates should be. Um, uh, you know, uh, government policies don't in the long run, create anything. They only move things around. They favor one group and they uh, penalize another. When you have ultra low interest rates, you're favoring borrowers, you're encouraging borrowing, uh, which has risks attached, but you're also penalizing savers, 
retirees, people on fixed incomes. Uh, I would like the economy to be making that decision rather than uh, the Fed. Having said all that, let me say, uh, I don't uh, claim to be smarter than they are, and they've been doing this for years. Uh, so I would not superimpose my views on theirs. But I, if I were in that position, I think I would be a little less activist. Yeah, well, you're sort of suggesting that we've lost all signaling power from the economy. And I think we've gone full circle on the conversation due to the amount of money that's slushing around into the system. And um, I think the expectations that the Fed's all powerful and can do everything. I mean, in this country now, uh, there's a hope that Jay Powell will tackle climate change as well. It's like, what more do we expect from our, uh, our central bank governor? Um, exactly. I want to talk to you about China because... Um, I read in your note too, and actually I didn't know this, and I think it's very important, you're part of the Shanghai International Financial Advisory Council too. So you'd get a window into understanding their desires to encourage foreign capital into China, despite some of the broader challenges and tensions at the political level. Howard, what do you foresee for China, whether it's growth or, or the relationship with the West? Because you do have big investments there too, so it's, it's important for many reasons. Yes, uh, Julia Oaktree has been a very active investor in, in China for uh, a good period of time. And uh, we think we're the largest buyer of uh, non-performing loans. Uh, and uh, of course, that's, that's one of our specialties. Um, <clears throat> I think that China will continue to grow at an above average rate uh, relative to the rest of the world, which means that it will uh, uh, become larger relative to the rest of the world. It's the number two economy today. Uh, I hope within, uh, I hope I'm still alive to see, I think one of these days, it'll probably be the largest economy in the world. Uh, it's growing uh, aggressively and purposefully. Uh, but, you know, I think of China uh, uh, as, a, as an adolescent economy. I mean, it's only 43 years since the end of, of the, the Mao period. And um, I think that I, I think that uh, like uh, any adolescent, if you've ever had one in your home, you know, it can be turbulent. It can be up and down, uh, tempestuous. Uh, I think that, you know, uh, since the end of the Mao period, China's never had a recession. One of these days it will uh, when when uh, uh, cyclicality overcomes growth. Uh, and yet uh, I do think that China's best uh, decades are ahead of it. And you still see them growing and outperforming the rest of the world and becoming the biggest country, which some of the bears out there and the concerns, particularly those that look at what we're seeing in terms of the debt levels in China, are concerned about. Um, on that note, we shall see. And you say that at the end on many things we shall see. Um, I can't have you on my show and not ask you about crypto, given the interest. And I think the most popular word this year actually is not trillions. It's NFTs. Um, but I won't ask you about that. I believe your son invests in crypto infrastructure in particular. Can I ask how important a proportion of the, the broader fund that is? Is it just a tiny part? And what are your views on that space? Uh, my son has a mandate for our family uh, to make money, not to worry about <laughs> diversification, uh, uh, concentration, volatility. Um, uh, I, I take care of that in the portion of our money that I run. Uh, I'm, I'm good at that. He's good at making money. Uh, and so he has, uh, you know, a, a meaningful part, a meaningful fraction of the part of our money that he runs is in, is in uh, cryptocurrencies. 
and related infrastructure. Uh, uh, and uh, we're, we're very happy that it is. You know, he, he and I lived together, our families lived together for a good part of the pandemic. And he worked me over on this subject. And he has convinced me uh, that my view uh, was, was not up to date. He's tried to bring me up to date. Uh, I do think it's uh, challenging generationally since, the, since crypto is not only an innovation, but it's an entirely new concept. I think it's hard uh, for uh, generations like mine to get their hands around it. It's easy for him and his, uh, his uh, contemporaries. Uh, but, uh, you know, basically he's convinced me, number one, uh, that I didn't know enough to have a strong opinion, uh, which I absolutely have subscribed to. Uh, and number two, that uh, the cryptocurrencies have uh, uh, attractions and applications uh, that I didn't appreciate before. So uh, I don't opine on the subject anymore, uh, but I would describe myself as more open-minded uh, as one should be, because the, the opposite of open-mindedness is a terrible thing, especially in a changing world. I love that response. Open-mindedness is all important, particularly in this day and age. Do you still enjoy it, Howard? Do you still enjoy investing and, and doing the well, job that you do after so many decades? Because it has got more challenging, I think. You can tell it, me it if I'm wrong. It has become more challenging. Uh, I, I use a quote in the, in the memo from uh, Don Meredith, who was an American football player. Yeah. He said, they don't make them anymore the way they used to, but then again, they never did. Uh, you know, we, we say tough times today, but boy, I, I, I really enjoyed the past. Well, the past wasn't so great either. We, we were worried... Uh, when I was a kid, we used to uh, uh, get under our desks to protect against uh, uh, atom bombs. Uh, so um, those drills would, would really uh, make us pr pretty scared. But uh, I think it's, 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 investing is great because it's not static. Uh, it's not a field where the things you learned 50 years ago uh, are sufficient today. It's not a field where uh, there's a method to answering a question which is sure to work. Uh, yesterday's solution may not work tomorrow, uh, which keeps us on our toes. The winds of change. Howard, fantastic to talk to you. Please come and talk My to pleasure. us again soon. Howard Marks, co-founder and co-chairman of Oaktree Capital Management. Great to chat to you, sir. Thank you. Thank the market you. opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. markets are up and running on the last full trading day of the Wall Street week. Markets, of course, closed on Thursday for the Thanksgiving holiday, at least in the United States. And it's a half day of trade on Friday part-timers. This is traditionally a strong week for stocks, but not this year. We're seeing a broad-based pullback today as Europe's COVID outlook worsens and global interest rate fears rise. New data out today supports the argument that the U.S. needs less robust economic support going forward. Weekly jobless claims now below 200,000. That's their lowest level since 1969. A strong sign that the American jobs recovery is gaining traction. And speaking of new jobs in the United States, Samsung is making a big investment in Texas. The South Korean giant will build a semiconductor plant for some $17 billion. Christine Romans joins us to discuss. Christine, happy Thanksgiving Eve to you too. Um, the chips certainly aren't down, they're rising, at least in the United States. Let's talk about this first. This sure. makes a welcome change. 
It really does. I mean, look, COVID broke everything, right? It broke just-in-time inventory. It broke the global supply chain. And now you're seeing companies work to make sure that this doesn't happen again, that they don't have their parts in far-flung parts of the world, and that disrupts their ability to make their products. So Samsung investing $17 billion in Taylor, Texas, just 16 miles from where it already has a production facility, a manufacturing facility there in Austin. And the company going out of its way to thank... uh, the policies and the um, the tax policies actually in Texas, but also thanking Congress and the Biden administration for doing everything they can to invest in domestic manufacturing so the chips can be made here in the U.S. and we can start to, uh, um, you know, unwind some of these 30 years of globalization that saw uh, parts far flung around the country, labor all over, around the world rather, all over the world. I think you're going to see people start to figure out how they can get control of these supply chains a little better and invest, investing in Texas is part of that here. Yeah, I mean, so much in there as well. I mean, Samsung, I believe, has been in America since the late 1970s. Yeah. They've got 20,000 employees here. But yep. the idea that they're saying, look, Texas, thank you. Give us the tax incentives. Give us the breaks and we'll come and invest here. And, you know, it helps America's the supply chain as well. Speaking of jobs, Christine, what do you make of that, uh, that jobs report? really something, wasn't it? I mean, Mm. to see a print below 200,000, I mean, it made my heart sing. And maybe they'll take some of that back next week. You know, these can be volatile week to week. So let's be very clear about that. But the trend, Julia, the trend is our friend here. The trend has been getting better and better. I mean, look, we're in a tight labor market in the U.S. You hear one of the top concerns of CEOs is a labor shortage. You're not going to be laying off a lot of people when you have a labor shortage, right? So that, I think, is the backdrop here. There, You know, you can make the argument this means we need less support for the economy, or you could make the argument we need even more support in the workforce, investing in working families, and especially working women, who many of whom have dropped out of the labor market, right? So I think you can spin it both ways, what these strong numbers mean. It does show American consumers say they don't feel good about the economy, but we know the job market is getting better. Um, We know that they are exhausted by COVID, right? And they're, you know, they're exhausted by inflation, but many of these other indicators in the economy are flashing bright green here. Yeah. That's one of my favorite working women. I wish you a happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see you afterwards. Thank you. You too. Christy Romans, thank you. The European Union urging China to provide veritable food proof that tennis star Peng Shuai is safe. Peng has disappeared for weeks after accusing China's former vice premier of coercing her to have sex. She re-emerged this weekend and held a video call with the head of the International Olympic Committee, which then stated she was well. But human rights groups are unconvinced and have accused the IOC of being complicit in China's rights abuses. As CNN's Will Ripley reports. Zhang Li, China's 75-year-old former vice premier, the one-time face of the Beijing 2022 Olympics, and the man who stands accused of sexual assault by one of China's premier tennis stars, Peng Shuai. Her disappearance in the wake of the allegations on November 2nd and mysterious reappearance over the weekend, fueling a firestorm that threatens to dismantle China's worldwide sport aspirations. Or does it? While the Women's Tennis Association's threat to pull a 10-year multi-tournament contract could cost China, contracts with Major League Baseball, the NBA, Formula One, and others put China on course with its goal to make sports a $780 billion industry by 2025. This could be the biggest sport economy in the world. Sports is already big business in China, 
home to almost one and a half billion potential fans. According to analytics company Global Data, Chinese firms' sponsorship agreements with the International Olympic Committee and football federations FIFA and UEFA alone are worth more than $2.2 billion and growing. Athlete sponsorships and sports manufacturing account for lucrative deals for companies like Nike. In 2018, Nike made some $6.2 billion in China. That number rose 21% from the previous year. Nike saw just a 7% increase in revenue in North America over that same period. So far, Peng Shui's sponsors have stayed silent in the wake of the allegations. What a lot of organizations are trying to do at the moment is, is to navigate the middle way. The WTA has a lot to lose by taking a stand. Reportedly, one-third of their revenue comes from China. For the NBA, the outcome was remarkably different. Basketball is China's most popular sport. But after a quickly deleted October 2019 tweet by Houston Rockets general manager Daryl Morey in support of the Hong Kong democracy protests, the backlash from China was swift. The threat of sponsorship loss, broadcast denial, and severing of ties with the NBA proved a bridge too far for an organization that at that time made 10% of its revenue in the Chinese market. The NBA initially distanced itself from Mori and moved to do damage control, hoping to salvage its relationship. And the IOC, looking at a multi-billion dollar revenue stream from China's hosting of the Winter Olympics just a few months away. That relationship with China, like it was in 2015 when Zhang helped negotiate Beijing hosting the 2022 Winter Games, appears as strong as ever. Will Ripley, CNN, Hong Kong. We're going to keep talking about this until her accusations are answered. That's it for the show. Stay safe. Marketplace Europe is up next, and I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.